Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us again in another Tuesday discussion of Ayn Rand's essays. Today's essay is The Psychology of Psychologizing. So, James, could you guide us a bit more into what is psychologizing? And could you show us a bit the concept, what it is, what it is not? In this essay, Ayn Rand is eager to distinguish between psychological judgment and moral judgment, and the two are very, very different. There is a relationship between the two that she certainly does not deny, but there are also two entirely different modes of judging and evaluating. A clinical mode of evaluating someone's subconscious and uh, background, and the ethical mode of judging someone's conscious convictions and conscious actions, and the two are very different. Psychologizing is like rationalizing. What it's doing is it's taking a valid cognitive process or method or science and corrupting it, corrupting it with an ulterior motive. Just as rationalization corrupts uh, reason into sort of an excuse for, you know, a rationalized excuse for something that's really an ulterior motive, so psychologizing is the same thing. It's not real psychology. It's not, and mind you, we have to note here that, as Ayn Rand does, that psychology is still very much in its infancy. It, she says it's in a pre-Socratic stage, which is not even found. It's Plato, much less it's Aristotle yet, and I have to pretty much agree with her on that. We really don't know the science of psychology in the same way that, say, we've grasped the, the dimensions of physics. We're in a very early stage in that regard. But she's not even talking about the case where a professional, no matter what their school of psychology is, actually examines the person and comes to a careful, you know, at least uh, fact-based, logic-based uh, 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 diagnosis of the person. But that diagnosis in itself has to be done carefully by professionals and has nothing really to do with the task of moral evaluation. Moral evaluation is about a person's conscious convictions and conscious actions. It presumes cognition is valid and objective cognition is possible. It assumes free will is real. It assumes, you know, even when we're infants, even when we're children in our development, as Ayn Rand points out, we come to realize that we have a certain control over ourselves. We have the capacity for emotional self-regulation. We are in control of our conscious actions. Our conscious thoughts do control our conscious actions. So what Ayn Rand is saying is that it would be a profound mistake to confuse moral judgment and psychological judgment. And one of the main upshots of this is that emotions and psychological conditions are absolutely absolutely outside the realm of moral evaluation. The fact that a person feels something, the fact that a person has a psychological condition is in, in, on the scale of ethics, on the scale of morality, irrelevant. Your psychological problems, your emotions are not subject to moral evaluation because they're automatic responses of your subconscious. Yes, we program our our subconscious by means of our conscious values. That's the insight of cognitive psychology. And that's one of the powerful points here. We are capable of understanding where our emotions come from through introspection by understanding the evaluations which underlie the emotions. So our emotions are not causeless things out there, but on the other hand, they're automatic. Once you have that inculcated, once that value is automatized in your mind, you automatically will have that emotional reaction, whether it's an appropriate emotional reaction or not. But human beings don't have to act on that. People can, don't have to act on their emotions. They have, their, they have the capacity for objective cognition. They have the capacity for free will. And so a person's psychological judgments can neither condemn them 
nor excuse them. Whatever a person's psychology is short of psychosis. Now, granted, there are, in rare cases, people who are truly and consistently psychotic. That is to say, out of touch with reality. For them, objective cognition is not possible because they are not perceiving reality correctly. They are truly out of control of their behavior. That is a rare, extremely rare phenomenon, psychosis. And even in many cases of psychosis, by the way, you don't completely lose objective thought, the capacity for objective thought, or free will decisions based on it. In fact, there are all kinds of, take for example, the, the maybe you've heard the, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case, one of the diagnoses, and I'm not making a judgment about it one way or another, one of the diagnoses of Amber Heard is that she was a borderline personality. Well, what does that mean? Sometimes she's psychotic and sometimes she's not. Sometimes she exhibits psychotic tendencies, other times she's, she does not. Even people who have psychotic diagnoses are not always completely out of control of their behavior. But leaving aside the issue of psychosis, where a person truly is not in contact with reality mentally, and therefore are, are not in control of their uh, uh, actions in a rational way, excluding the very rare moments of, of true psychotics, even neurotics, even people with relatively severe psychological problems still retain the power to act, think, objectively judge things. Look, we've known since Aristotle that ancient people were able to understand that certain choices will lead to happiness, certain choices won't. <laughs> That's what Aristotle was talking about. The Stoics in the ancient world, I don't agree with their philosophy. They tend to be a kind of a re emotionally repressed, they advise emotional repression, to, it seems to me, to, to, from my way of looking at it. But nonetheless, even the ancients were well aware that people could take control of their own consciousness and that it was important to sort of do this in, 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 in introspective inventory of yourself so you get better self-possession and control. But what Ayn Rand is saying here is that psychology and ethics are two totally different things. To use psychology to judge someone, to judge someone negatively, or to excuse someone from any moral responsibility are the two sides of this psychologizing coin that either blames or excuses someone based on their emotions or their psychology. And emotions are automatic. You cannot use them to morally judge someone. It is only on the basis of their conscious convictions and their deliberate actions that we can judge from people from. Now, the first thing that, that it comes into my mind is uh, I, I channel my psychologist friends and I think they would be very... Uh, they would almost go neurotic when when uh, something like that is said because they say some most of them say something like, "Well, everyone is a bit at least a bit um, uh, psycho has a bit of psychological issues in himself, so, and he cannot control that. So, who are you? You cannot judge that. Like people cannot um, control themselves. Have some pity on them. What?" No, isn't that isn't that the whole issue? That entirely. That is the destruction of ethics on the pseudoscientific basis of psychology. Yeah, you'll find a lot of people that say no one can ever really know why they did anything. We're all being controlled by forces beyond our control, and that there's nothing we can do to to fight that. We just, in fact, we're all just mysteries to ourselves and to one another, and we just have to accept people for how they are. And you know, some people are serial killers and you know sadistic uh, torture killers and other people you know are productive uh, uh, giants who uh, you cure cancer uh that's just you know has nothing to do with morality choice effort 
objective cognition, free will, nothing like that. No, that's out. That divorces, so they're using psychology, you see, to destroy the entire realm of morality. And that's the way a lot of people approach psychology. But the fact of the matter is an ordinary, uh, you know, from the time we're children, we know this, take an ordinary lie. Someone lies to you inappropriately, uh, dishonestly, truly violates the virtue of honesty and lies to you to obtain a value from you. Now, under objectivist uh, ethics, of course, that's clearly wrong. Any attempt to deceive you, fake reality, in order to gain a value from you would be wrong. Now, I can know that. I can know that consciously. Whatever my psychology is, whatever the motivations I have, I know when people lie to me to get money out of my pocket, I don't like it. It's wrong. It's theft. I can cognitively and objectively, and humans have known for thousands of years that theft was morally wrong at some level, at some level. And so what the psychologists are saying is that that objective moral knowledge, that telling inappropriate lies to gain values from people can't be morally judged because we have to take into account their psychology, whatever the state of their knowledge, whatever the state of their knowledge. Now, I know damn well that person knows that lying to me was wrong, wrong. And I know that they lied. I don't need to know anymore. I do not need to inquire as to their psychology, their childhood, their upbringing, the way their mother abused them. I don't need to know the poverty they came from. I don't care. If they are capable of objectively knowing the truth, if they're capable of objectively knowing the importance of the truth, if they know that it's wrong to try and steal money from my pocket by telling me a lie, that it's wrong. And I can morally evaluate that person regardless of his psychological state. It's that simple. And it's that basic knowledge that we really all possess, that, that these uh, psychological determinists are trying to wipe out of existence. Now, uh, don't you think that it could be also related to the whole idea of um, something that the same Rand talks in, in the essay of thinking about these kind of issues as a psychologist in the same way as doctors approach a disease, in the sense that they, they see the facts and they, they just, they, they won't, they they have to compartmentalize in, in a very specific way, saying this is uh, what this patient has and this is how I'm going to sort it out and then evaluate that maybe as, a, as also as a, a moralist, like these kind of issues are really wrong in what he did. Maybe I, I can treat it this way, but I won't treat it because I think this person is evil or something like that, right? Well, a psychologist looks at their the evaluation they're doing is not a moral evaluation. It's a clinical evaluation, determining causes and trying to determine a course of treatment. If, like a medical professional, you're actually trying to determine the actual causes, this requires intensive, careful, responsible, thorough investigation, just as it would from a medical doctor. If a medical doctor told you, well, yeah, go, I think what we need is some bleeding, we need some medieval leeching uh, techniques, uh, that's about at the level much psychology is on today, and that's in effect the kind of uh, stuff that's doing. But assuming even that you have a good psychologist and is giving a responsible diagnosis, that's not what Ayn Rand is talking about. If you have a private diagnosis and you're seeking help for your problems, but by the way, the ability to seek help for your problems already shows that people can transcend and overcome their emotions. They don't have to act on their emotions. 
they can say, well, there's a problem here and I maybe should look into it before I act on it. Or maybe I should seek therapy to overcome this emotion. Of course, that's the kind of cognition and free will which these people wipe out of existence, <laughs> in effect. But what Ayn Rand is really talking about here is not even the professional setting, even with theories of psychology she disagrees with. If it's a professional psychologist that you're in therapy with, you're doing a, real, a, a responsible investigation, that's one thing. But that's your private business. And no one needs to know that in order to morally evaluate you if your behavior justifies that evaluation. Um, no, what Ayn Rand is talking about here in the psychology of psychologizing are these are the shoot from the hip, unprofessional cocktail party newspaper. Give, let me give you an example. How many times today in modern popular psychology magazines or popular politics magazines have we read articles that diagnose the psychology of conservatives? Conservatives suffer, what conser political conservatives basically suffer is this syndrome of psychological problems, or you'll hear it on the right. You'll do the, the, less often, but even the right will say, oh, well, you see the psychoses, the neuroses that uh, involves leftism, you know, the leaning towards socialism, basically a psychological disease. Just like the, the liberal psychologists will say, well, you know, leading to the right, being a conservative is basically evidence of a psychological disease. And what they are is a way of dismissing the opinions. They don't care about history or economics or political theory. That's not what they're thinking about. Objective cognition is exactly what they're bypassing. Free will is exactly what they're bypassing. They're saying none of that matters. Everything you are is just an automatic product of your psychology, including your political views. Uh, now, that is what Ayn Rand is talking about. She uses a specific example here. Back in the 1960s, in 1964, the Republican presidential candidate, Senator Barry Goldwater, was accused during the presidential election by a psychologist in a magazine of being un psychologically unfit to be president. Psychologically unfit, I think it was a magazine called Fact Magazine, <laughs> that said he was unfit to be president for psychological. The man has never met Barry Goldwater, much less done a responsible psychological uh, diagnosis of him, and yet he came out with this. Barry Goldwater sued the guy between 1966 and 1970, won the case, and guess what? It led to a new rule from the American Psychiatric Association called the Goldwater Rule. No professional psychologist can give a unqualified diagnosis of someone he's not thoroughly examined. And here Ayn Rand comes real down, down real hard on these leftist attackers on Barry Goldwater, and they're thoroughly unprofessional, thoroughly unscientific, and thoroughly mystically based diagnosis of Barry Goldwater. But today we hear the very same thing. Uh, um, the Barry Goldwater rule says you can't do that to, to someone you haven't met if, if you're a professional shrink. Uh, but today we have the same thing, only with broad groups. Right. If you are conservative, for example, you must be a neurotic along these certain lines. That is solid psychologizing. But there's also the cocktail party type. You'll meet him at the cocktail party. You'll have a conversation and someone will say, ah, yes, well, of course, you come from that background. You had this experience. You're like that. I can detect from your emotional reactions that you're like this. And they'll zero in on a scientific so-called pseudoscientific diagnosis of what you are, therefore, either dismissing you out of hand and everything you think and believe and do it, it right so it's a form, form of condemnation that avoids moral evaluation but it's a thorough condemnation nonetheless that evades the whole realm of moral evaluation now maybe that brings me to another major topic uh of rand's epistemology which is the conception of what the arbiter is 
Could you tell us the arbitrary? The arbitrary. What, what is the connection between this and the arbitrary? Well, this is exactly what I mean. You see, if you have been subject to some, at least the best of what psychology could currently offer, if they are doing as responsible and as professional and as scientific and a thorough investigation of you in particular by a professional, that's one thing. They're presumably using the best science and they're get, gaining a lot of evidence about your own personal experience. That's not arbitrary. What Ayn Rand is talking about is, for example, the Barry Goldwater case or the condemnation of all conservatives for having a certain psychological outset, you know, mindset. Uh, that's what she's talking about. And that is, of course, totally arbitrary. There is simply no evidentiary basis to make these big, broad conclusions. Uh, in fact, the, the conclusions are so big and broad that it's obviously the product of uh, pure arbitrary mysticism, just as so much mysticism is. It's fact-based, reason-based, logic. It's not based in fact, not based in logic, not based in reason. And it's just thoroughly arbitrary in its assertion. Just because you vaguely seem to remind them of something is not grounds to either condemn you or excuse you on the basis of your emotions or your psychology. In fact, in general, emotions and psychology are outside the realm of moral evaluation and shouldn't even be brought up in that context. In that context, they're always arbitrary. When I'm talking about a moral evaluation of someone, for you to bring up his neurosis is irrelevant. It's arbitrary. I, this guy consciously did this knowing better. A moral evaluation done. I don't need to inquire into his childhood, his toilet training, how his mother treated him. <laughs> That's irrelevant. He lied. He knew better. Moral evaluation closed. James, you mentioned that uh, we see this often in politics or trying to judge, like, for instance, the uh, how liberals or how conservatives, what kind of mentality they have. I'm curious about... Um, if this attitude is also common in historians in, in, in your um, development and knowledge, or for instance, on your book, did you encounter these kind of issues often? Constantly, constantly. Well, there's two things with it that they do with uh, history that are mo really striking in this regard. They will psychoanalyze figures from history who died centuries ago, <laughs> completely violating that Goldwater rule of the American Psychiatric Association. They obviously had no chance to examine the person, interview them, do objective testing on them, know about their background, do a proper and scientific evaluation, at least as scientific as we can do it in our current state of psychology. They're unable to do that. So a 500, a 2000 year old historical figure they'll talk about and they'll use all kinds, as Ayn Rand points out, all kinds of invalid uh, theories. You know, was it a Freudian Oedipal complex? Is there, you know, that Julius Caesar was suffering? You know, they'll impose on Genghis Khan some kind of psychological diagnosis that's really basically arbitrary. But more than that, they'll impose psychological uh, you know, things in a group way, a sort of a collective diagnosis of a society, which again is completely un un baseless. You can really see, 
philosophy is what really motive ideas is what really motivates old cultures. But there are historians who are perfectly happy to say Christianity was the product of human, you know, some generalized human condition of their psychology, ignoring, for, exa for example, that there are people who aren't religious at all. There are people who aren't Christian at all. If this was some universal psychology, why don't we all have the same uh, ideological phenomenon? That will not give them pause. This phenomenon was the result of human psychology as such in history. Or this historical figure from, uh, his famous figure from history. Uh, they've got a new show com uh, coming out about the biography of Queen Elizabeth, Becoming Elizabeth. Now, I think you can maybe make certain inferences about her character, uh, maybe even some broad generalizations about her psychology and personality. But to make a detailed psychoanalytical analysis of a person who died, you know, more than 400 years ago is unprofessional but it happens all the time. And it's a level, just like with morality, it's a level of judgment that the historian does not need to go to. You see your, your work hampered in some way because of this, maybe. Um, well, in my own case, I find myself being psychodiagnosed for coming up with a theory. <laughs> yeah. This guy has an inner hostility to Christianity. I mean, the Christians who raised me were wonderful, nice people. I still love them very much. But somehow I'm being told by some people, because I am critical of Christianity, Christian ethics, or I have some theory about, uh, secular theory about Christian origins, that there must be some inner hostility <laughs> I'm trying to express about Christianity, which I find interesting. These don't be People don't know me. They don't know my experiences with Christianity, and yet they're perfectly comfortable telling me that I have a psychological problem because I'm a critic of Christianity. Sorry to know that, but maybe related to that, do you think that overall in in the world, in the culture, has has this attitude of psychologizing become more prevalent than in the '60s when Rand was writing about this? Or oh. less prevalent. Oh, oh, much more prevalent. People are much more satisfied with their own state, however disturbed or sick it may be. Psychology is unfortunately over the last. I have noted. This is my own personal experience. I, I very much grant it. It's my own observation of news headlines. But people are much more insistent about being who they are, however unhealthy or damaging that is. <laughs> They're just perfectly, well, that's who I am. I'm just fulfilling just my own, this is how I am. And uh, take it or leave it, accept it or not. And they're not even willing to engage in the introspection. As Ayn Rand points out in the article, it's not just the psychologizers who are at blame, but there are many of the victims of psychologizing who share in this blame. They're perfectly willing to have the moral exoneration of their psychology. This frees them from any moral judgment. This is who I am, you see? And I think that has definitely increased over the years. You know, in the first decades of the 20th century, psychology was a revolution. Freud and James and Adler and Jung and those that came after were starting a whole new field. And in one sense, they were doing a you know, some of them were here for however wrong, and many of them had tremendously wrong ideas, at least they were beginning a science and starting to look at human psychology in a scientific way, or a semi-scientific way at least. And in the early decades of the 20th century, this was catching on among intellectuals in a big way. By the middle of the 20th century, when Ayn Rand is writing, by the 1950s and 60s, the Western world is enraptured by psychology. Freud is a household name. Psychotherapy is a common thing by the 50s and 60s. And that's when it was really starting, and Ayn Rand really wanted to make a point about it. By today, 
some 50 years later, it's the situation is even worse. People will use psychology to condemn political views they don't agree with all the more rancorously um, condemning them for their politics because they're diseased you see or on the other hand people are happy to to get that uh, moral responsibility out there oh it's the way my mother treated me it was my potty training or something and therefore i'm not responsible if i'm a congenital liar or an abuser or a manipulative person and i don't have to worry about that let me um, pitch in uh, the Bonnie's super chat. Thank you very much, Bonnie, because I think it's related to this. She says, psychologizing wipes out free will, as James said. It became an excuse for anything because, quote, he just can't help it, unquote. And of course, Ayn Rand was traumatized by the Soviet Union. Oh, like that. That's it. Look at Ayn Rand. Look at the psychologizing of Ayn Rand herself. Now, mind you, the Soviet Union was a horrific totalitarian dictatorship that slaughtered millions upon millions of people. Ayn Rand herself was unjustly impoverished by it. Her family's business was taken away. Her family nearly starved to death. So something in reality bad was happening. So rather than focus on, did Ayn Rand actually have a bad experience in the Soviet Union? Oh, no, you see, Ayn Rand was traumatized by communism. Therefore, she must be an anti-communist. Now, wait a minute here. If that was the case, she could have become a white. She could have become a czarist. She could have become a religious. She could have become conservative. She didn't react those ways, did she? In fact, like I, a lot of people who fled from, this, the, from Russia because of the Soviet revolu revolution came to America and none of them had Ayn Rand's views on it. I cannot name, there were a lot of Russian emigres uh, 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 in Hollywood, just like Ayn Rand was a, a Jewish Russian emigre in Hollywood in the 1920s. None of them had Ayn Rand's political perspective. Most of them leaned left. <laughs> Some of them leaned right, of course, but others leaned left. None of them had Ayn Rand's ideas. To think that Ayn Rand's ideas can be reduced to her psychology or her personal experiences is absurd. I mean, just look at the difference, say, between uh, Vladimir Nabokov, a Russian writer of her same generation who left Russia, and Ayn Rand. And here you can see totally different ideas. Would someone say, oh yeah, Nabokov's philosophy, the reason, the only way you can understand Lolita is to understand his trauma from living in Russia in the first part of the 20th century. That's absurd, and that would be wrong. Unprofessional, and a perfect example of psychologizing. Now, James, one of the interesting things of the essay is that she says that the harm of this uh, psychologizing is often, quote, incalculable, unquote. Um, wasn't Brandon allegedly like that uh, in, while being in the NBI? Why is it incalculable? And uh, could you, as, as, a, as a biographical, um, with your bio biographical knowledge of this issue, could you guide us a bit more on the um, issue well, going over there? Well, if a person does have, to the extent a person does have psychological issues, and I'm, I'm willing to say, yeah, we all have particular psychological contexts. We all have mothers, we all have upbringings, we all have contexts, we're all coming from somewhere, right? There's no question about that at all. But if someone's really got significant psychological problems, look at what they are. They're suggestible, they're insecure, they may have self-esteem issues, they may be easily confused, they're looking for answers, 
And sometimes a simple, glib, superficial answer can suck them in because they're really looking for answers. So when a person is going you know, for help or asking, admitting psychological problems to someone or going to someone for help saying, can you give me advice on this, whether they're a professional or not, they're in a sensitive spot and that sensitivity has to be respected. In fact, if you're not a professional, stay the heck away from it. Don't judge them at all for it. It's their issue. It's their issue. For someone without, who is not doing a complete and thorough psychological diagnosis of someone, it is completely irresponsible to give them their hypotheses, their theories, their guesses, because what they could be doing, much less their condemnations, much less their excuses, could absolutely devastate someone who is psychologically sensitive. If a person has psychological issues, you have to be sensitive about it, leave them alone about it, not morally judge them about it. To do the opposite is to only make the psychological problems worse. You're doing incalculable damage to a person. If a person comes to you and says, I have issues, the one thing you don't do is start throwing out things to start making them label themselves, start feeling bad about themselves, and so forth. Yeah, almost entirely to, with Ayn Rand's uh, ignorance with almost entirely uh, outside of Ayn Rand's uh, knowledge, Nathaniel Brandon, as a psychologist through much of the 60s, was behaving in this way. And there were many reports of that from people who were in therapy from uh, Nathaniel Brandon that Ayn Rand only learned about uh, during and after her break with uh, uh, Nathaniel Brandon. But she also had experiences herself with Nathaniel Brandon in 1967 and 1968 before their break. The psychologist, Nathaniel Brandon, had solicited psychological counseling from Ayn Rand, from Ayn Rand herself. And through most of this, he was evasive. He was saying things just as Ayn Rand says on one of the pages of this article. What are my feelings? I don't know. How do I, what are my behavior? I don't know. And he would tell her, I, you just, I just have these unknowable psychological forces that are causing me to have feelings and do things that I, are outside of my capacity to know. So here is a psychologist who presumably agrees with Ayn Rand on basic philosophy, basically mouthing back to her that my psychology is out of my control and you can't really blame me for what I feel and think or do uh, because of my neurosis. No. Uh, Nathaniel Brandon was a classic example of that. You, if you read my book, The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, and especially part two, Ayn Rand's own notes on therapy that she did with the famous psychologist Nathaniel Brandon, you'll see that really that is the, the time in this article where she zeroes in on what he, what he was doing with her, with her as an intimate friend as an intimate friend. Now, their romantic relationship had already long ended by this by this time. Uh, and I think it would have been inappropriate at that point. But he was behaving just as this, I don't know, I'm out of control, I can't help it person that Ayn Rand is quoting in this article. But he's the other side of the coin as well. He's not only with Ayn Rand saying, I couldn't help it, it's not my fault, I couldn't help it, without explaining the lie, without yet explaining the many lies that he told her over several years. He's still trying to give this giant excuse, I couldn't help it, to her, while on the other hand, with his own 
therapy uh, clients and patients. He's imposing these horrible feelings of guilt. And, you know, it's your fault. And if you were rational, you wouldn't have the, if you were an object, real objectivist, you wouldn't have this emotion. You wouldn't have this psychological state, which is, of course, exactly wrong. Objectivism is objectivism. Your psychology is your psychology. Now, I absolutely believe that if you truly inculcate objectivism, it will be psychologically good for you. On the other hand, it does not mean that a real objectivist who truly believes objectivism can't still have all kinds of psychological issues they're dealing with. Two totally separate issues that Ayn Rand wants to make totally clear and separate. Um, so maybe I want to return a bit more with the Brandon issue. If, uh, but related to that uh that you say that um the, the there can be two sides of the same coin like the person who says well i couldn't help it but then condemns um uh, to other people when this person condemns what is he earning in quotes what is what he gets when mm. when he does that he becomes the grand inquisitor he becomes the mystic authority. He becomes the high council of the church. He becomes the pope. See, you don't really know what's going on. See, notice that it's mysticism, rank, solid mysticism. It's connected to what we were saying about the arbitrary before. Um, I don't need to explain to you what your problem is, Alejandro, you see, because I already know what your problem is and I'm telling you what your problem is. And you are really not sure of it, right? And I am the authority. I am the psychological authority who can tell you that your problem is X, Y, or Z, even if you don't, even if you have no clue or basis for believing that that's your uh, uh, problem. No, it's all designed to do exactly what the mystic uh, is want, wants to do. You can't know, only I have access to the truth as the mystic authority expert. You can't know, and it's precisely because you can't know that you really have to take my authoritative guidance. That is the formula for solid mysticism, and that is exactly what the psychologizer is doing. He's putting himself in the position of that mystic authority who can terrify you, induce guilt, unearned guilt, without you even knowing why you're feeling this, uh, this unearned guilt, uh, because he's gained this authority, this psychological control over you by having these mystical, magical diagnoses, which are really no better than the Oracle of Delphi or tarot cards. One of the one of the things that I learned from Ayn Rand is that guilt is a very profound way of controlling people. Mm -hmm. uh, inducing guilt is very useful if you want some people to do something. Um, and related to that is is the issue of saying, "Oh, you're a bad person because you feel this." Um, listen to me, and I will uh, make and, and and I will sort out your problems. Or if I don't sort out your problems, it's within your innate depravity. Um, <laughs> do do you, um, maybe this is a trick question? And uh, do you think that uh, Brandon was like that? Did he had that kind of psychology? Yeah, that's well. I don't want to psychologize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did, <laughs> but I did have an opportunity to read the notes from Ayn Rand's psychotherapy sessions with him. I did have the opportunity to read every word he ever published and spoke. I did interview him in person 
pretty much all day at his home in the 1980s. And if I, I'm not a professional, I'm not, uh, you know, and I'm certainly not a psychologist, but uh, the impression I got was of someone who was wanted to cow, I could feel it with me. He wanted to cow me with his authority, his psychological authority. He wanted to imply repeatedly things about me even that he couldn't possibly know. And I was just a young college newspaper interviewer, right? Um, so from those, I just got the impression that that's how he wielded psychology. So that when I heard from various other people, and I mean various other people who were close to Brandon and Ayn Rand uh, about uh, Dr. Brandon, it just completely confirmed basically my impressions. I will purge the names from here, but I heard stories from prominent academics who said they were at a party with Brandon in the early 1960s, for example. The, the guy, the new the academic, he'd just gotten his, uh, you know, uh, degrees from uh, Ivy League schools and did extremely well. And he was in therapy with Brandon. He was a good guy. And his new, he was bringing over his new date that he was dating, uh, his new girlfriend. And he separates from her at the party. And there's Brandon downloading the man's private psychology to the woman at the party violating all kinds of confidentiality rules that psychologists have, revealing all kinds of private secrets to the guy the guy was dating. Now, what, what could possibly be the sound motive for doing that? There can, in my mind, there can't be one. I don't know all the psychology that caused Nathaniel Brandon to do something so rotten, so something so objectively rotten. But I just know from several people that they've reported him doing those kind of rotten things. As a psychologist, qua psychologist using his role as psychologist to do that. In that sense, I, I have to say that I have at least enough basis to make a moral evaluation, if not a full psychological evaluation, that what he was doing was wrong. And the moral wrong here is psychologizing. If he had done professional psychology, uh, I, I, I couldn't make the same evaluation, you see. I'm not a psychologist. But as an ordinary moral judger, I can say what he was doing was wrong as a psychologist. Make sense? Yes, thank you very much. I always like that kind of uh, details. Um, so we have talked about modern art in the past, and I think even Rand talks a bit more a bit about this in relation to this essay. And it has to do a bit with this idea of, I don't know if that expression is, exists in English, like throwing the hot potato to you. Like what that implies is that um, okay, I have this, you interpret it. You know, I, I painted this and I think it's a great uh, work of art and it actually, it's a great work of art. I don't know what it means. That's up to you to interpret. And if you don't know what to, it, it is to interpret, that's your flow. Um, but oh, the, artist, the artist she quotes is even better than the art, art watchers, right? They asked a famous artist, could, well, could you explain your, your, your literature, right? Can you explain why your themes always have, ha your stories always have ha unhappy endings or always do these sort of things? He said, I don't know, ask my therapist. <laughs> Talk about moral abdication of your own. I mean, he has presumably has access to his own mind, presumably has access to at least to his own conscious motivations. And he's saying, I don't know. 
he's saying that even my conscious motivations aren't going to help you understand <laughs> my literature. <laughs> now imagine the, the, the art viewer. So I don't know why I'm responding to this weird Kandinsky splotch of colors. Uh, it's up to you, Mr. Psychologist. See, it's the idea that we can't really know our own psychologies. But of course, that would invalidate the whole field of psychology and tell us we can't get psychology off the ground if we can't make objective judgments about psychology, objective causal uh, determinations, objective diagnostic uh, prescriptions. Without that, there'd be no even hope for a psychology uh, science, right? Uh, so, uh, but it, yet that's the assumption. The assumption is since my motivations, my emotions, my behavior are all out of my control, how am I to know? why I like art. And of course, modern art's a great excuse. It's a completely ineffable mystical thing, just like the psychologists, uh, psychologizers, not the psychologists, like psychologizers are in effect mystic authorities. So in effect, these arts and uh, artists and art, art experts are their mystic authorities. And I really don't know what's, I can't introspect and figure out anything going on in my own head. So it's up to you, the psychologist, to tell me why I am the artist or why I'm the art lover that I am. Total nonsense. It ignores the possibility of objective thought and it ignores the reality of free will, just as Bonnie says. Thank you. So uh, let me thank uh, Jaime for his very generous two contributions. Uh, thank you very much. Thank um, you. Yeah. So, James, we're approaching to the end. Um, I don't know if uh, you wanted to talk a bit more about something in particular. I wanted to end this with a more maybe normative content, but I don't know if you if there was something that you would like to um, um, pitch in before I have my last question. You know, Ayn Rand makes a really good, there she makes so many good points. It's a brief essay, but it's really an important essay because it does distinguish what is more subject to moral evaluation and what is not. And our psychologies and our emotions are simply outside the realm of moral evaluation. And they're generally our private business, which are no one else's even to be a worry about unless there is some real objective reason to worry about it. Um, <clears throat> she says that it's really not the role of friendship to be psychotherapeutic. The values we get from our friends and our lovers, imagine in romance it being a psychotherapeutic thing. Uh, it's not a psychotherapeutic relation. We take people as they are and enjoy them for who they are or not. I have just spent the weekend uh, in the mountains uh, and my best friend in the world, apart from my wife, is a psychologist, a professional psychologist who works at our county psychiatric hospital. And the thing that I spent the weekend up there with him. Now, of course, you can't avoid the topic of psychology, can you? He's a professional. That's part of his life. But the one thing he does not want to do is talk psychology. Mine, his, anyone else's. He just wants to have fun, share real values share our conscious thoughts about, about our conscious values. And uh, he's constantly saying, please don't take into account the fact that I am a psychologist. I'm a human being too, and please treat me as such. So I wanted to endorse in a big way what Ayn Rand said here. Uh, it is not appropriate to reduce our friendships except under very extraordinary circumstances. I mean, the fact that my dear friend is a psychologist means that we are talking about psychology and even our own psychologies more than most people would. But in most circumstances, friendship should not be a therapeutic condition. Friendship should be a sharing and enjoying of values. 
with people who share and enjoy our values. It shouldn't be, in effect, an analysis of where your emotions come from, where my emotions come from. Seek therapy from a therapist. <laughs> Have fun with your friends. <laughs> Thank you, James. Sure. And the, the, the last question that I had had to do with how can one prevent oneself from becoming a psychologizer? One hat, well, the key here is objective thought. Do not use the modern, the very contemporary, very new science of psychology as some kind of means of moral condemnation, like a medieval inquisitor. Do not use and understand the role of emotions. And I think that's really the important thing here. Emotions are the automatic physical products of mental psychological programming we've done of our evaluations. When our evaluations get made and they get inculcated and habituated into us, they're part of us. And sometimes it takes years to alter our personalities, alter our emotions, even if we can. And sometimes we can't. There are aspects of our psychology that may be totally outside of our ability to control. How we deal with our psychological problems can be a moral issue. If I know I have a problem, if I know I have an issue that's harming me or harming someone else, I have a moral obligation to attend to that at least as best as I can. How we deal with our psychological problems can be a moral issue, but psychological problems as such are not. Emotions are simply outside the realm of moral evaluation. And whether it's a psychologist doing it or anyone else, who's trying to throw around psychological terms, either to excuse someone's behavior, to excuse some liar, some murderer from their horrific action, or someone who's trying to condemn you, trying to make you feel bad, trying to make, you know, uh, put you down and induce that guilt to manipulate you. Both are wrong. Psychology and ethics are outside the realm of moral evaluation, even though our emotions are based on our cognitive evaluations. Thank you very much, James. Um, as always, it's extremely exciting to be talking to you. Oh, thank you. You always ask wonderful questions too, Alejandro. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so, um, unless you have something else to say, I will thank you. Thank you, the audience, uh, for this uh, for joining us today again in this Tuesday discussion. We will see you next week. Please consider, yes, sir. Absolutely. You. <laughs> you know, if you like this program, please hit like, subscribe, share, make comments, and now you can hit the join button. And just by hitting join, you can become a regular subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center UK. So if this kind of programming has any value to you, please do consider it. Uh, Rosie Ginsburg is coming up with all kinds of new extra benefits for those who do become uh, paid subscribers. So all I can do is uh, just ask you to help keep the lights on around here and help us keep doing this important work. Thank you. Thank you very much.